Hi everyone, I hope you enjoyed episode 1. Karthik and I loved your comments and love that we are getting some constructive feedback. We are now back with episode 2. Episode 2 features Todd McNeil, the co-founder of Reflect, a no-code test automation tool for web applications. Todd and his co-founders started the company in 2019 and went through Y Combinator in 2020. Prior to this, Todd was a software developer and director of engineering. This interview with Todd is very unique. Todd answers our questions with a lot of empathy for the audience that the questions cater to. For example, when Karthik and I asked questions that were meant to help managers, Todd put himself in the shoes of the employee that reports to the manager, which brought a surprisingly new perspective for the answer to our questions. He doesn't hesitate to critique his own methods in the past as he learned and grew from his experiences and his outlook was refreshing. Karthik and I found ourselves reflecting on our own learnings and career developments. We hope you guys enjoy the interview and as always, don't forget to follow our LinkedIn page and leave comments and feedback. So let us a uh, brief introduction of Todd for the viewers. Todd is the co-founder of Reflect, a low-code, no-code solution for web app testing. So thanks for joining us, Todd, this afternoon. Uh, I'm sure our uh, listeners and viewers will have a great time and get a lot more insights from you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Awesome. So to get us off started, Todd, what was your first job and what's one piece of knowledge you acquired in your first job that still sticks with you and you still use it till date? My first real job, I had worked uh, at a, a bar, actually. I was, uh, I was 12 and my, uh, my aunts ran the bar and there was like a bar plus like bingo parlor. So I ran the snack bar at the bingo parlor. It was fun. I mean, lessons taken away from that, you know, showing up, you know, just doing it, uh, having something where you have the responsibility to do it. And then you get rewarded with some money, which I got paid 20 bucks, which seemed like a lot. And that was fun. Also, you know, customer service. I didn't really have too many customer service jobs, you know, being a programmer, you get to just sit in front of a computer instead of interact with people. But that one was, I guess you'd say customer service and you learn to be nice to people. And, you know, if you treat people well, they'll, they'll treat you well. And I enjoyed it. There are a lot of older ladies there that were regulars that um, liked me and I, I liked talking to them. And yeah, it was, it was a nice uh, introduction into uh, the job market. I mean, that sounds like a fun job. I mean, I'd have a hard time keeping my hands off of the snacks, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was, I guess that was a perk. Yeah, I could just have whatever I wanted, but I didn't go too crazy. Actually, I liked one of the other things you mentioned too, that it's, you know, about customer service. How would you bridge that gap between, you know, someone who's sitting in front of a computer uh, programming all day um, versus, you know, actually going out there, finding out what the customer need is um, and bringing that into their work? Yeah. So that's pretty relevant for what we do. So we're a, we're a developer tool. Um, so even though we're no code, a good amount of our customers are developers. And if they're not, they're in a dev organization. And so as a developer, building a developer tool, I think it's it's a unique opportunity to understand the customers, even if you're just coding all day, because you're a potential customer of it. So you should be building something that you would want to use. But what we do here is 
Um, all support requests are visible to everybody. So the support email that we have goes to everybody in the company and only certain people respond to it, but you get to see it. Yeah, we just encourage people to kind of get primary knowledge. So direct from the customer. I've noticed in previous roles that like part of the problem that developers feel isolated is they never get interaction with the customer directly. So you either have um, indirect information or no information at all. So you have zero context. So finding some way for, for them to at least see the feedback, good or bad, I think can, can help. Yeah, because when I used to work in consulting in my previous work, I would be built by the customer. So the customer is sitting right next to you when he goes, yeah. yeah, the piece of code doesn't work. You did something and it broke. Can you fix it? But then the more you come into a research organization, like in my current place, my customer is three steps away. And the feedback I get is a man in the middle who, and sometimes can give me the accurate feedback that the customer has. In some cases, I'm like, getting a muffled version, we just end up playing a game of telephone at the end of the day in terms of what the customer exactly wants out of Yeah, that's actually a really good point with being a consultant. I After college, that was my first job is doing consulting and custom development at different, so we would be like on the customer site and yeah, you get, you get direct feedback from them. Now, customer in that case might not be like the end user of your application, but it's certainly the people who are making the requirements for it. As, so, as, as, so as part of this, I know you've gone through the whole developer journey to you now co-founding Reflex. So what are some of the things that you've had to unlearn? I think that things I have had to unlearn are, are basically assumptions I made about what, how people would use the products and, uh, you know, adjusting that based on evidence. So I think it's, it's good to be able to build things based on imperfect data. Like you have to do that at a startup. And so it's okay to go on intuition, but then you can't dig in if like things aren't working. So there's been a lot of instances, uh, like that here, like certain features where I'm like, yeah, well, we don't need to allow people to edit this thing because, you know, I don't think anybody would ever want to do that. And then you get a bunch of questions about people who want to do it. And you're like, okay, well, I was wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> let me, uh, let me reevaluate some other things I assume is true and go, but yeah, just having an open mind, being willing to be wrong. I've had to do that a lot. I have a follow-up question. So you, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about the assumptions you make. Sometimes when you have a customer, you as a developer are at the cusp of saying, okay, am I going to accommodate every customer request that comes in to make it way more customized? Or yeah. Or am I just going to be like, okay, this is where this stops and you guys will need to adapt your processes to start using my tool. That's another tough one. That was something, so I had done a startup prior to this and then had like a stint where I, I worked at a startup for a while. And the first time I did this, my startup, I was going to and fro based off of people's feedback. Like basically my perspective would change on whatever the last person told me. And uh, it's really bad because you don't have the focus. Whereas like, I think with this one, I've had much more of a perspective. Like, yeah, sometimes it's wrong, but the benefit of having fairly strong opinion about things is that you're not changing priority every day, every week. And that's something where like, if you do that, it's really visible in the organization and people feel like you don't know what you're doing. I feel like. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cutting out that niche for yourself in the employment space is also important. But actually speaking about 
organizations and you know people who are working with you i'm sure you work with a lot of people now and there are a lot of people who work for you with you as a young entrepreneur you've been on interviews uh in early days of your career um but also now when you interview someone for a job at reflect other than the job qualifications of course what are a few things that you look for in a potential candidate so i've um had a good amount of experience interviewing people I haven't had a ton of experience interviewing for positions since last time I did it was 10 years ago uh, when I joined the uh, last startup I was at. So when I was uh, engineering manager, director of engineering, I interviewed over that course of several years, maybe like a thousand candidates, maybe more. And um, those were engineering uh, candidates. So it was more, I think it's a little bit different than my interviewing now where I'm interviewing like sales folks and marketing. And so my thought on interviewing non-technical people is that we're looking for people that are intelligent, that can get things done and are good communicators. I think those are the three traits that no matter what position we hire for, but especially non-technical, that's traits that we're specifically interviewing for and, and trying to understand. I think, I think two of the things that you said being a communicator and getting things done are very interlinked with each other. Um, yeah. I always feel like you can't get things done without the help of, without the help of a team, um, even though you're an individual contributor. So I think communication plays a big role in in saying, you know, I need help when when I need to get something done. Um, I totally agree. I'm sure you've had a lot of product pitches and you've had to go pitch ideas in a room of experienced people or people, someone who's entering the space and who's like, hey, I have this great idea. What are some of the ideas? or advice that you would give people in terms of making it easy so that the pitch cuts through? So I think one thing I would advise people is to know the audience and tailor the pitch to the audience. So uh, one thing that we learned at Y Combinator, which I try to employ, is that a pitch to a customer is not a, the same as a pitch to an investor and vice versa. The, reason why I think comes down to the fact that you need to appeal to what they want. You need to understand their needs, what they would benefit from with investing in you or using your products and talk about that. And part of that also, and this is universal, whether you're whoever you're talking to is you want to talk about them. You don't want to talk about you. So a mistake I made early on that I since learned after doing presentations is that it should really be directed about to the audience, right? And it's easy to talk about, well, here's Reflect and here are all the features that we have and here's how it works and blah, 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 blah. But it's really should be, here's Reflect, here's the, the problem that faces a lot of companies. And I assume that's the problem that you face. And here's how we solve that problem. And here's how you'll benefit from it. And here is you know, how you'd use it. So yeah, I would say that. And then the other thing I would say, especially for like, you're starting a business is that results trump everything. You don't have to have the best pitch. If your results are good, you don't even need a pitch. You will just need to tell them the results and people will want to invest in you. There's a continuum there, but for most people, you need to have good results and a good pitch, but people with incredible results don't need anything other than that. So, um, I mean, speaking a little bit about employees and how things work in an organization, you just mentioned that, you know, it's, it's important to cater things to, you know, customers, because at the end of the day, 
those are the people that we end up serving, right? An audience, yeah. you know, customers are always changing in terms of their need and their want from the product, uh, especially in a developing product like yours. So where is that fine line that you draw to say that this is, this is what we do and, you know, this new feature is not something that we will support as part of our product. And this is a feature that we can stretch ourselves to do, to explore new markets, say. It's uh, definitely evolving uh, a lot based on customer feedback. It relates back to our goals. So if our goal was to just have a nice stable business and minimize the amount of time that we're spending on it, then we might not take any customer requests and just say that it is what it is and we'll fix bugs, but that's pretty much it. Uh, I could see that if things were not working at all, which is thankfully not the case, then we would take any feedback and try to find that something that's the kernel of a great idea, even if it's completely different than what we're doing. But in our circumstances, we're growing and we're building upon this core, which we really strongly believe is the right way to solve the problem. So for us, we have the I think luxury to have a more stronger perspective and be uh, confident in it. So it's really about what do we want? We want to grow. We want to make the product even better. And there's a certain perspective where we think this is the right way to solve the problem. So, you know, in a good amount of res respects, like we, we have a strong perspective. Like if someone that says like, would you support writing code in this? The answer right now is no, because we don't think that that's the right approach. But I could see if things were not working, we'd say, well, maybe we should do that. In terms of digitization, right? Uh, currently, we live in a digital economy. Like you have more competition that's coming in, new tools. Today's software is obsolete tomorrow. Tech stack keeps changing. How do you keep up pace with it? Uh, in terms of, as an employee, what two cells do you have for an employee in terms of keeping up with uh, ever-changing landscape? And B, what does a company do in such a scenario where the economy is changing, like new tools are coming, like cryptos, cloud, there's this cloud, that cloud, and there's a lot of competition, especially in the platform as a service and software as a service space. As an employee, I can speak to as an employee than as someone like building a company. So as an employee, if you're in technology, you just have to keep up with what's what's coming. It's just part of the part of the job. It gives you an advantage because you can see things that maybe other pre people don't see. You'd be able to add value, like even something like something that's a really repetitive, difficult process in your your job. There might be something out there that solves it that other people don't know about that you do. That could be a really big benefit to the company and then a benefit to you because people will then start looking to you for or uh, insight, see you as like an expert. As a person building a company, I think there's things in technology that change a lot and, and those changes will have really big effects. And there's some things that don't change. Example of something that doesn't change is web app applications, like the web as a paradigm. Like even with mobile, uh, which I would say was probably the last uh, big like computing paradigm. Web is huge. Like web has been around for 30 years now. It's, I don't see it going anywhere. And so I think like, for example, for our company, we can assume that web browsers will be around for the next 30 years. I, I would place a bet that that is, that is the case. 
And so that has some implications. Like it means that, you know, web apps are probably just going to get more and more complex to build unless abstractions are built on top of it. It also means that if you can help affect change where you make web apps easier to build and maintain, you can add a lot of value because that that is just going to be more and more important over the years. In terms of things that do change to keep up with, it's what's the next thing where if you can support it today and be an early supporter of it or early adopter of it, you grow with it growing. So that would be something to look at. Like some people think it's crypto, you know, it could be a integration with something which today has a niche need uh, or, you know, just has early adopters, but five years from now is like the dominant player. And you could be um, a really big part of that ecosystem if you latched onto it. I'm going to shift a little bit of focus and start talking about you personally as, a, as an entrepreneur and how some of these questions can help young entrepreneurs today. But, you know, I believe that the, that the, that the work that you do out of your 40-hour work week is just as important towards your career that you do within that 40-hour work week. Today, like, you know, work-life balance is a big topic. Um, you know, everybody is looking for organizations to give perks. In, in general, there, there are people I have seen at least who, who have a very great work-life balance, but they also spend some of the time outside of work to actually do something else and branch out from, from their career path. Where would someone start, first of all, in terms of trying to get started with like working outside of your 40-hour uh, work week? And how would they determine which direction they should start working in? Secondly, how, how would they manage that work-life balance once they start doing something like this? So in terms of choosing what to work on in your outside of your work life, you know, that's a very, that's a very personal decision. I don't, I don't think it's right or wrong for people to choose to, you know, work on work-related things or their own projects or, you know, something completely unrelated and just, you know, live their life. For me, I work on stuff that I, I liked. Like I, I've always loved programming and, you know, was always doing side projects and a lot of them, nothing, nothing ever came of it, but it was good experience for me. And so I would say, you know, if you're going to be a, an entrepreneur, like start a startup, you're going to spend a lot of time on it. So you should do something that you really like. Part of that is figuring out what you like. So if you're not sure what you like, just try some things, work with people that you like, work with people that, uh, you know, try to meet people that are of the same minds and see, see what you like. But you should probably pick something that you would want to be working on, regardless if you, you know, made a lot of money or not, because uh, it's going to take up a lot of your time. You know, I, I've, I have uh, a family, so I prioritize that and um it was really hard with the pandemic. Like, you know, like we didn't have childcare and I was trying to build a business and, but even like now that things are getting back to normal, it's still really difficult to like compartmentalize. I think, I think uh, one thing that you just touched on uh, the pandemic, that's been a, that's been a topic these days, especially for, you know, once you start working from home, even for people who just want to do their 40 hour work week and, you know, shut down their laptops, it's, it's become difficult because now you're working from home and it's not like, you know, I shut down my laptop at five and I head home and I never open it back up again. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm at home already. So it's kind of hard to shut things down and say I'm done. Yeah, I check my email 20 times a day on my phone. Yeah. yeah, because personally, I've observed that I've 
started working way more since the pandemic because i'm like i just lose track of time and i'm just breaking my head trying to solve a code i'm like yeah let me just go figure out that bug that came up in the code and fix it so that uh, it doesn't bite me in the morning type stuff that goes on so i know you have uh, investors and customers that you manage at the top and you have employees that roll up to you that you manage right so how does that managing expectations on both sides work for you like your employees have asks and needs from you your investors have targets or investors have a set of expectations from you and you are at the sandwich layer in between what are some of the traits that you think are important for someone to manage uh, expectations upwards and expectations downwards so on the employee side i think part of it is communication working at companies i think things that i wanted from my manager or you know to start up people running the company is i i wanted to feel like they valued what i did i wanted to feel like i could learn from them and i wanted to feel like i was doing good work and i think that that is about communication and generating trust and not losing trust one way to be a good communicator i think as a, a manager or running a company is saying what you're going to do and following through on it you know being transparent about things is good but if you're being transparent and saying okay we're going to do this but then never follow up on it that loses trust from somebody uh and you may not realize it they may not tell you but it it does so that's another thing i noticed like as a manager is that because there's a difference in power whether you acknowledge it or not there is right you're not going to really know everything that they think about you uh or the company and you can't just assume because people aren't saying things are bad that they're bad they're not bad rather So that's another thing is kind of acknowledge there's a power differential and there's ways to go around that like uh anonymous surveys and um being proactive about checking in and like what can I asking questions like what can I do better you know what can make what what what's like the worst part of your job stuff like that uh you know what can I what can I do better to help you succeed is one managing investors has been um not hard i mean i think what they're looking for getting back to like um speaking to the audience like An investor is looking to make a return for their LPs. Investors also like startups and so they like helping startups and uh want them to succeed too because if a startup succeeds that they invested in, the investor is succeeding. And so it's been really great working with our investors. We want to be good stewards of the money that they've invested in us and be transparent about what we're doing. And in return, they've been really uh great about letting us run the business and being helpful. uh where when we need help and uh and ask for help. So, I think there it's just having a good good relationship again being a good communicator. You know, you've made the transition from being an individual contributor to being a manager to now being a leader. Um you know, one of the one of the people that we interviewed earlier spoke about a difference in the role between being first of all an individual contributor and a manager. um but also a clear difference between being a manager and a leader in an organization so what has that transition looked like for you and for someone who is going through similar transitions in their career what advice would you give them and uh what would you ask them to focus on i became a manager maybe two or three years into my tenure at the last startup i worked at so i was a developer then became engineering manager 
and then was one of the directors of engineering. And one thing that was, uh, I really got a lot out of is we did a couple of training sessions, like half day, day training sessions with uh, like manage or workshops. I thought that was really helpful with learning some skills around having tough conversations with people and how to conduct things like one-on-ones. It was very tactical and it was something that's not obvious. People who get promoted, they're generally pretty good at what they do. That trait by itself doesn't mean that you're a good manager. So there's additional skills that you have to learn and getting help with that, getting some tactics for knowing what to know was really helpful for me. So I, I think that if you're a new manager, there's really good resources about it. Like there's podcasts on it. There's a podcast called Manager Tools, which I, I listened to, which was which was really helpful. And then if your company offers workshops or maybe ask them to like get you to go to one, I think is really worthwhile. On the topic of leadership, I think it's again, engendering trust and being a good communicator and being someone that people feel like they know what they're doing. Like what I was saying before, with being a manager, people aren't going to generally tell you that they don't like you or don't like their ma your management style, or some people will, but most people won't and don't think you're a good leader and don't trust you, whatever. And so you don't get any of that feedback. So if you want, you can do some really weird, bad stuff and there can some, a lot of times not be any repercussions. Like I see some things that people say and do who are like founders of companies. And it's like, that is wrong. That's bad. Like you shouldn't do that, but they don't have anybody telling them that. It's interesting. So how much of psychological safety is needed? Like for someone to go tell their manager that, Hey, I'm having issues with your management style or leadership style, because it's a two part question. The first question is I keep hearing a lot of, oh, I need psychological safety or we need to promote the culture of psychological safety in the org. The second thing is you have a lot of resignation going on, like the great resignation is what LinkedIn calls it, right? So what should management and leadership do to retain employees? I think it's pretty rare for an employee to feel comfortable to go to their boss and say that, like, I don't like your leadership because that might be the kind of manager where saying something like that is have negative repercussions uh, for the employee. So I think that's a function of HR. Having an HR organization, I think, is, is helpful in that regard. But maybe like something better is an organization where it's encouraged to have skip level meetings. So being able to not talk to your boss to say, hey, I don't like your approach, but talking to your boss's boss, and that's okay or encouraged. It's more likely that that person can, there can actually be a positive change, I think. On the great resignation question, I wish I understood the economic and social dynamics of it. Cause it seems, you know, if you look at it from a supply and demand perspective, there's a lot of demand and not a lot of supply. So to handle that, wages go up, but it doesn't seem to, it seems like there's still like a, a real big supply shortage. I don't, I don't know. It's a, uh, I really wish I knew, but uh, it's, it's puzzling. Yeah. Like, Dude, that's the million dollar question that everyone's trying to solve. Yeah, <laughs> does yeah, does anybody know? <laughs> Maybe our podcast listeners can answer that for us as well. Yeah, but, please. Um, when trying to solve a problem, like for example, you started reflect because you were trying to solve a problem that you saw right in front of your eyes. So what are the different characteristics or what, are, what is your thinking when it comes to, should I solve this problem by innovating and making something new 
or should I try to solve it with the existing tools that are available today? What are the different things that you think about before making that decision? And also, you know, innovation comes with risk. You know, there's risk involved in terms of even if you're within an organization, there's risk involved with the time it takes to innovate something. Um, there's risks involved in whether the customer will like it, you know, whether it um, caters to their needs and things like that. But as someone who started a company, there's a huge risk involved, not just in terms of, you know, whether the company is successful or not, but it's your career, your life that you need to think about. So what are the different things that you can do ahead of time before starting to innovate to um, mitigate that risk? When we, before we started working on Reflect, my co-founder Fitz and I got together and thought we might want to start something. So we just brainstormed a bunch of ideas and then researched things and several of them is like, well, you know, 10 things already exist. And I feel like that happens with everything. What I've noticed with just like side projects and stuff is like, you start out and you're like, I think I'm the first person to have this idea ever. And I'm excited. This, I'm good. this is going to be awesome. And then you start working on it and then you realize, oh, actually this thing doesn't work. Or there's this one part of it that doesn't work. This will never work. And then you're like, oh, actually it might work. And then you, you kind of have to push through. And then at some point, I don't know when this happens, but then you realize that like there's five or 10 other companies that already do this. I would say it's important to know that that's just the way it is and know that like, it's actually fine if there's a bunch of com competition, as long as you're just not copying some other company. Like, I guess some people make, make that work, but if you're just a solo person, like you need to have like a unique insight, I think. The other thing too is like building it versus using something. The Y Combinator advice is that do things that don't scale. And that's because you are focused on solving the problem. The how you build it, at least initially, isn't so important as long as you're validating that you're building something that people want and that they'll pay for it. If you've already gotten customers, no matter how you build it, you, you're probably ahead of 90% of the people who ever try something. I'm sure before you decided to take the step, you probably took a look at multiple entrepreneurs that were working, you know, they were already in the space working on business plans and things like that. What is one trait that you discerned from successful entrepreneurs that you've incorporated as well? So, yeah. So successful entrepreneurs, I don't have a lot of like firsthand like interactions with like super successful entrepreneurs. I know a lot of people who are working on, on stuff. And I would imagine that a key trait is like resilience, just being able to push through because just from experience, knowing that there's, there's a lot of things that get thrown at you. I'm sure that they had those same issues or even worse ones and were able to kind of push through. So as a, I kind of consider from an outside perspective, I would imagine that's probably the case. So for someone who's building stuff or who wants to build stuff, become an entrepreneur, what sort of encouragement would you give them? And what's some caution that you would throw out there so that they know what they're getting into? In terms of encouragement, do things that you love, like your life, life is short. For some people, you know, job is a, is a means to provide for themselves and their family and have a lot of other passions outside of it that they want to focus on. And that's totally fine. I don't think anybody should, you know, say one approach is better than another, but I think some people are wired. I think I'm wired this way where you just have this desire to build things and you're just like, get a dopamine hit when people use what you, what you built. If you're wired like that, then you should go try to build something and uh, build something you like. 
uh, build something you're passionate about. In terms of caution, it takes a lot of time. You know, it takes a lot of time to build a successful business. Usually, some people it doesn't. Uh, and if you're lucky few or that's the case, that's great. So even successful businesses, like successful people run that business for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know? And so again, you, you probably want to do something that you really like if that's like your time horizon. Last question that we ask everybody that we interview, uh, how would you define success? That's a tough one. Well, it's not happiness because happiness is fleeting. Uh, I don't think you're successful just because you're happy or can be happy when you're successful, but that's not the only determinant of it. But I think it's about setting a goal and hitting it or learning something. I think it means different things to different people. But for me, in some ways, I feel like just being able to build something that one person used was, was a form of success. But as time goes on, you've kind of set new goals and you're always reaching more. I'm sure there's aspects of even the most successful people where they feel like there's things they failed at and they're still kind of reaching for it. So success is meeting goals. It's a motivator. It's a way to gauge what is meaningful to you. That's a, that's a very, very unique and very, very well put answer. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, that was completely off the cuff. Uh, <laughs> off the cuff answers usually just hit, hit correct usually. Well, uh, thank you, Todd, for doing a, um, an interview with us on the EITF project. Uh, it's been great. I think your your take on things, your perspective on things was, was very unique um, in terms of uh, everything else that I've heard. Um, you, you have a very uh, unique taste of... Um, marrying your answers from from the perspective of of an employee versus also from a perspective of someone who's running an organization which was which is a very rare combination so it's great to have you on i i love chatting with